0: Picture this. William Shakespeare sitting at his desk, quill in hand, preparing to write his next masterpiece. But what's really on his mind is the cool earring he just got. Nothing is coming, I've grown so old, No! Yes, I am ancient. You are but a strapping 42, sir. The average life expectancy in Jacobi in England is 42. <laughs> a perspective. Thank you for the strapping, though. In a new play called Jane Anger, it's Shakespeare in Love by Way of Monty Python. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. The play Jane Anger stars Michael Urie as a narcissistic William Shakespeare locked down in London for the plague with his assistant Frankie, played by Ryan Spahn. Will is trying to write King Lear, but he's desperately blocked. When Will's former flame, Jane Anger, shows up, he knows she can help him finish the play. But Jane wants something in return. She needs Will's help to publish a pamphlet she's written that calls out sexist male playwrights for the wrongs they've done to women everywhere. After a run off-Broadway in New York, Jane Anger is currently playing in Washington DC at the Shakespeare Theatre Company. The playwright is Talene Monahan, who also appears in the play as Anne Hathaway, Shakespeare's neglected wife. The pamphlet at the center of the play's action is a real historical document, Jane Anger, Her Protection for Women, published in 1589. But the identity of the historical Jane Anger is still unknown. Monahan has taken that historical blank page and written on it a revenge farce that's by turns savagely funny, comically violent, and seriously outraged. It manages to take in present-day concerns like Me Too and the pandemic, while also making room for ecstatically silly bathroom humor. Here's Talene Monahan in a conversation with Barbara Bogave.
1: Why don't we start with the, the hero of your play, Jane Anger? Because she just slays. (laughs) Tell us everything you know about her. Well, no one seems
2: to know that much. Basically, it's just there is this pamphlet that was published in Elizabethan England during the same time that Shakespeare was writing. And it was called Jane Anger, Her Protection for Women. And it's this sort of radical, wild, scorching proto-feminist pamphlet that is discussing sexism and denouncing sexual assault and sort of, I think, in a very radical way, taking issue with the way that men write about women and the way that female characters are written, which I think is super fascinating and radical even by today's standards. Hey, their slanderous tongues are so short and the time wherein they have lavished out their words freely has been so long, by so long. Here, I'm referring to all of history. Does that make sense? Oh, okay, yes.
0: It have been so long that they know we cannot catch hold of them to pull them out. They think we will not write to reprove their line list. They think we will not write. Yeah, and they suppose there is not one amongst us who can.
2: There's just this this pamphlet, and no, they don't know who Jane Inger was. Some people think
1: she was a man, which feels sort of improbable to me, but... Um, <laughs> And she really gets into it in the pamphlet. And by the way, um, yeah, I heard you stopped yourself because the, the title's really long. It's her protection yeah. for women to defend them against the scandalous reports of a late <laughs> surfeiting lover and all other like venerians that complain so to be overcloyed with women's kindness. Uh, <laughs> I will yeah. look up venerians. Which is...
2: Yeah, there's a lot that needs to be looked up. It's not like a straightforward <laughs> piece of writing. I will be the first to admit that. Um, it's
1: wonderful. It's full of character. The language is though so really interesting in this in this pamphlet. It, it feels mm-hmm. really modern. I was looking at um, w- w- one of my favorites, Fie on the falsehood of men whose minds yeah. go off to matting and whose tongues cannot so soon be wagging, but straight they follow the railing.
2: Yeah, it's really evocative. I thought a lot in creating this show about anger artists, which is a distinction that Virginia Woolf drew in A Room of One's Own and the difference between people who are sort of regular artists who are able to kind of dissolve their identities in their work because their work is not defined by their anger or their politics, you could say, and The people whose anger is the thing that compels them to create, and it sort of is a defining part of their work. Virginia Mm. Woolf talks about Jane Austen and also Shakespeare as people, as artists who lack anger and who are, she sort of marvels at the way that they're able to write without anger. And Tony Kushner talks about Larry Kramer as being a great example of someone who could not and would not choose to do that. Who was sort of? I, I think it, it ties in with activism too. Writers and artists whose work is so defined by their anger—it's like the driving force. And while we don't know anything about Jane Anger, it's very clear to me that she did not have that privilege of being able to write without anger. But also, I don't know that she would have chosen that. It's—it's it's this sort of really
1: stunning work. It almost feels like it was written in one sitting you know it's true it's true you feel this forward velocity as the pamphlet goes on and and you you mentioned some of the things she gets into which are very serious critiques of, of men's sexual assault and abuse mm-hmm. and but she also gives a really good description of mansplaining <laughs> yeah <laughs> Totally, right? the the desire that every man hath to shew his true vein in writing <laughs> is unspeakable and their minds are so carried away with the manner as no care at all is had of the matter and they run so into rhetoric as oftentimes they overrun the bounds of their own wits and go they know not whether she just nails it yeah
2: it's, it's such a wild piece of writing. I was shocked that I hadn't heard of it sooner. I was like a women in gender studies major in college, and I was just shocked that it had never come up, and it had never come up, and all my kind of research on Shakespeare. It took me kind of a while to find it. I'm so glad I did.
1: I'm going to ask you about that in a second, but I wondered: did you get any ideas for jokes or bits for the play directly from the pamphlet?
2: Certainly, I think the play pokes a lot of fun at these phenomena that you've described in the pamphlet, like mansplaining, like men taking up space, like sexism. Frankie and Will, the two male characters in the play, really indulge in those things. In a way that is also tied in, I think, with traditional farce and traditional male humor and even... Even comedy that I grew up with and I'm obsessed with, like Monty Python and old SNL and and stuff like that, has sort of a casual misogyny or sometimes an overt misogyny just built into it. Like it is sort of the language of a traditional type of farce. So using that in both the form and function of the play and then trying to invert it ultimately is, is my goal.
0: A woman writing? What, sitting at her little desk with a quill, scribbling away in her skirt? Look at me! I'm a woman writing! (laughs) Look at me! I'm a woman forming words in my mind and then making sentences out of them! (laughs) Oh,
1: that is so interesting, because it is hard-baked into comedy, if only because comedians uh, primarily were male. Right? Totally. Like the history of comedy. You're, if, if we're talking stand-up, we're talking about Angry Men.
2: Oh yeah, for sure. And I was sort of amazed when I I, I first started writing this play. It, it was first a short play, and it was just the male characters. And I wrote it for my friends Michael and Ryan, who are in this production, Michael Uri and Ryan Spawn. And I wrote it in April of 2020, and it was streamed virtually in May of 2020. And it was just the two men, and it was very silly, and it was like 20 minutes long. Um, this is the
1: Frankie and Will story. This is
2: Frankie and Will, mm-hmm. yeah. And I was just sort of amazed at how naturally that kind of humor and shtick, including the casual misogyny, came out of me <laughs> when I was writing it.
1: And this is—Will this is uh, Will is William Shakespeare, and Frankie yes. is his— kind of assistant or manservant. And these characters are in your play as well. But it yes. So so you so you found this you were just falling into this kind of uh, male kind of comedy. It felt like what I knew
2: how to write. And so then when I thought when I wanted to expand it into a full-length play, it felt really important to me to complicate that and address it and to turn it on its head. And the Jane Inger pamphlet felt like the perfect way to kind of answer that ultimately. But it was interesting, you know, as a, as a woman, <laughs> as a feminist writing this play to be like, oh, this stuff comes really naturally to me just because I'm sort of writing in the voice and the
1: style of what I associate with humor and what I know. So you started thinking, okay, we're going to subvert this. I need mean, some female characters. How, yeah, how you, yeah. How did you come upon Jane Anger?
2: Well, you know, initially I was like, oh, well, yeah, there's the dark lady of the sonnets. She could be a character. But then I read the dark lady sonnets and I thought these are really not very nice to who whoever the dark lady was. It felt really much more complicated than I had realized.
1: Also, uh, maybe not a lady. <laughs> Also, maybe not a lady. So so wouldn't fit the bill.
2: And I think there was something about, I was like, she has to have something else going on. There was something about, like, having the character just be the dark lady of the sonnets that still felt like it was really centering Shakespeare and his work in a way that I was, there are many things that have centered Shakespeare and his work. And I was like, I don't really want this play to do that. I want to go in a different direction. And so then finding the pamphlet, I thought, okay, what if she has her own agenda? And what would it look like for someone to have written a piece of writing like this? Certainly they would not be able to tell most people that they had written it. It feels so revolutionary and radical that I imagine it would have to be kept under wraps and someone would have to be very crafty to figure out how to actually get it published.
0: I've written a thing. What? you have? Yes.
2: And I would like it
0: published, but I can't do it myself for obvious reasons. Because you were a woman, and you used to be a house whore who ran a filthy whorehouse. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Great, you got it. So what I need is for you to sign a paper that says I, Shakespeare, endorse this work for publication. And I'll take you to William Jaggett and his printing press,
0: and he shall publish it, because you have such a weighty name. Shakespeare. <laughs> Great job. That's your name. We do it.
1: I don't want to beat this into the ground, but no, please, <laughs> because this is a very funny play and very uh-huh. fun to watch. Yeah, but it is kind of interesting how you get to real issues of uh-huh. feminism and the relationship between men and women and how screwed mm-hmm. up it can get, and 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 anger. Just Jane' anger's anger comes across mm-hmm. so righteously. Mm-hmm. I wondered, as you were writing, did you have to balance or were you aware of balancing this super funny farcical uh, play with something deeper?
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's such a good question. Yeah, I was. And thinking about this woman who has very little privilege or opportunity in this world, but who has this thing that she wants to be published and all the limitations that she's up against to getting it published. But the ideas, I think, are really important. And it's very moving to think of, to me, to think about someone carrying them and wanting to get them out into the world and the type of space they could take up if they had been more widely distributed or if she'd had sort of the same kind of opportunity. As someone like Shakespeare, I'm not saying that they're equivalent writers. Certainly not. But, you know, as I said, she's like an anger artist. She's doing a different thing. And also, I uh, I'm glad you asked me this question because I, I I wanted to speak about Amelia Workman, who plays Jane, who is a phenomenal actress. And the writing of Jane has very much been a collaboration with all the actors, but especially with Amelia, trying to figure out, you know, how do we. She's 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 more of a real person than the than the other characters certainly than Frankie and Will and how do we balance the jokes and the humor with her intention and her through line in the play? Uh, well, that is
1: such a hard balancing around. act. I mean, it's, it's really, really a really nice hard edge. balancing act. Yeah, how, for sure. can you give us an example of something that Amelia came up with to either further the comedy, the comedic edge, or further the the characters, you know, just righteous, just serious core. Well, what's amazing about her is that she can do
2: both simultaneously, which is really uh, special. But she's really great about, you know, when, when we get to different moments in the play. Saying, I think I would need. I would think I would want to say more here. I would want to because her character has the power of of using asides to the audience. So we talk about when does she need an aside to clarify what she's actually thinking or what she's actually doing, and when sometimes Amelia will say, "Actually, I don't need that. I think I can just do that with a look." You know, Mm. I had this idea for the first uh, production that that Jane Inger would have sort of a stage manager in our town quality, and that she would be able to like provide more exposition and sort of step out of the play a little more and learn very quickly that that was not necessary. That was something if we had had more previews I would have changed it then, but that it actually feels more important for her to be more in the world of the play so that the stakes feel higher for her. Um, and she talks about in the, in the opening monologue, she talks about how she learned to read and how she has this pamphlet that she wants to be published. And she also talks about how Jane Anger is a name that she gave herself. And then she plays with it a little bit and says, well, not that I'm angry, of course, I'm just a silly little thing. Come on. What would I have to be angry about? She's really not allowed to show her anger for most of the play because she has to be handling these men and these egos to get what she wants. It's too dangerous for her to show her, her anger. And to have a moment where it's clear that this, there is something under the surface that is surging beneath her. And I said, I was, you know, coming up with different lines to embody that here at the end of this monologue. And Amelia said, well, what if I just repeat that question? So she says, come on, what would I have to be angry about? And then mm-hmm. she takes a beat and she says in this way that sort of is very, both very moving and very chilling. She says... What would I have to be angry about? And then she says, I'm off to the printing press. But her idea of just, let's repeat that question and really sit with it at the beginning of the play, I thought was completely brilliant. Let's let that sink in. Let's let that sink in. And you experience the whole play after hearing her ask that question.
1: What would I have to be angry about? Only everything. Only everything. (laughs) Yeah. Then as now. Yeah. How did you stumble on the pamphlet?
2: Oh, I was uh Googling Shakespearean England women.
1: <laughs> this, <laughs> this is during just, the pandemic, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, this is like during like June of 2020. And I was just like typing like women in Jacobean England.
1: <laughs> and just in like your sweatpants. Probably, yeah, yeah,
2: literally, like at my parents' right. house, like clicking through the pages on Google trying to find something that sparked
1: my imagination. <laughs> While your sourdough starter is oh, bubbling yeah. away.
2: Exactly, <laughs> okay. exactly.
1: All right, so you found Jane Anger, mm-hmm. and um, you decided to make her a cunning woman, which is a type of medieval folk healer, or as as you have Shakespeare say in your play,
0: What is a cunning woman? Is that like a physician or a barber surgeon? Yes, Frankie, it is like a physician or a barber surgeon, except they have breasts and make less money.
1: That's well, what it lug. was. Thank you. <laughs> and then you throw in Jane Anger is also the dark woman of Shakespeare's sonnets. Ha ha. Yeah. That she's is a lot. a hustler. She's, yeah. she's wears many hats. Yeah. So what made you conceive of her this way?
2: Well, I was so interested in this cunning woman profession, and it felt like probably the most empowered thing a woman of that class could do. And... I was also basing her a little bit on one of the women whom scholars surmise might have been the Dark Lady of the Sonnets who was a Black woman who worked in a whorehouse. And I was like, oh, but what if she's left that and found this other <laughs> profession since then? And it also, I think when I was writing it in the peak of COVID and there was so much going around about like how to take care of ourselves and how to get over COVID and it, it felt like a really sort of rich profession to throw into the play that she comes in and is sort of someone who benefits actually from plague times, from being able to sell people goods and work charms that are basically fake. Um, but I just I think of her as a hustler and someone who's trying everything she can to get by with the ultimate goal of publishing this pamphlet.
1: You know, this is such a pandemic. Play in ways that I didn't even realize it. I mean, obviously, it takes place during the plague, but uh-huh. but here you are describing all the things that were floating around in your head while you were while you were writing. Were were you also kind of spurred on by those stories that kept running everywhere about how productive Shakespeare was during plague years? Oh or yeah, or annoyed. That I mean, was, I got sick of it.
2: <laughs> I got sick of it too, and I also sort of felt like it was. I think I think the sentiment was was in some ways lovely, but it, it also felt kind of weird and like this gross capitalist thing to like <laughs> in the first two weeks of COVID to be like, oh, look how many people are in the hospital. It's such a grim time. What a great opportunity to be productive.
1: Um, <laughs> and really. And Shakespeare wrote King Lear
2: during the plague. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly.
0: So much pressure, Francis. Pressure. Sir? Yes, pressure during the plague. To write something truly unprecedented. Everyone says, oh, Will, it's the plague again. We can't wait to see what tragedies you produce this time. Right, right. Time I go into quarantine. I'm it like, to be more timely and prolific than the last time.
2: So that was the initial impulse for Frankie and Will, was just like a dumb sketch piece making fun of that, basically.
1: Right. Shakespeare was, with uh, writer's block and stealing, just changing the spelling of King Lear in
0: desperation. <laughs> yeah. I shall write like a play about a king. So fun! An aging king and his three daughters. I am obsessed, sir. And I shall call it King Lear. What? I shall speak louder. I said King Lear. Um, you um, you know that been written already, right? Uh. Written like ten years ago. I think it was Thomas Kidd. Actually, uh, right. I see that you know this because you're
1: currently holding the manuscript <laughs> well, tell me about your Shakespeare because you you did have to bring him to life what what was your what was your raw material you were you were working with?
2: Well, you know another thing that happened during the pandemic was that the theater industry has started to have a pretty long overdue reckoning with abusive behavior in the workplace. And there's a, a tricky and complicated conversation being had about great art and great artists and bad behavior and abusive behavior and when those things intersect. And I thought it was interesting to think of Shakespeare as a bad man. And I don't personally necessarily <laughs> think that it. like, I think someone can write really great plays and... Uh, Be a bad person. Um, (laughs) Can and have been. Can and have been and (laughs) And will be. Um, And obviously (laughs) all human beings are good and bad and lots of different ways. And that's sort of reductive. But I was really thinking about, you know, what if he's not charming or romantic or, you know, what if he is still a complete genius and also. A total uh, jerk. Yeah. Yeah. So I was really thinking about that when I wrote it. And I thought that was fun to play with. And then I was also reading uh, revenge tragedies, which are were a very popular genre. At the time that Shakespeare was alive, he wrote some revenge tragedies. And they're just so bloody and campy and ridiculous. And I thought it would be fun to sort of write in the style of that, but make it a comedy. So I call it a revenge comedy.
1: Um, OK, so you're adapting the play and you added mm. Jane Anchor. What did mm-hmm. make you want to add Anne Hathaway to the mix and, and cast yourself in the role?
2: Yeah, well, I've said this in another interview. So the secret is out. It's that I lost my health insurance during the pandemic. Uh, I was getting health insurance through Actors' Equity and I lost it. Like and so I was writing the play, yeah. like so, like so many people. And I thought, well, you know, if this ever got produced, if I wrote a little role for myself, I could uh, start earning health insurance weeks back. So I was like, well, what if what if Anne Hathaway came on? <laughs> 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 it gives you a really—it's uh, a win-win. Nice insight into my chaotic. Plot making as a writer. (laughs) Well, were you tempted to cast yourself as Jane Anger? No, no. I felt from the research that I'd been doing that Jane Anger
1: was a black woman. From the start?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. From the start. And Uh, why? Well, because I'd, I mean, I, I just had was sort of taken with this one description of this prostitute named Lucy who they thought the Dark Lady of the Sonnets might have been. And I was just, you know, reading the pamphlet and thinking about the language of it, and it just felt like like she was a good sort of prototype for the character.
1: And also having, having Anne Hathaway in the mix actually is a great balances the play with two women no it actually
2: ended up really kind of solving the play in the end Anne Hathaway is sort of also a a, a tribute
1: to the actress Anne Hathaway oh yes there are some Anne Hathaway modern day uh, Anne Hathaway jokes
0: Anne Hathaway sucks the energy out of the room with her earnestness (laughs) she just tries so hard
1: (laughs) do you know if she's seen the play I
2: think she certainly has not um, <laughs> but Broadway World, during the first production, they would list the, the play with its full title and then they kept on tagging her, like, the accidentally. Oh, smart. That's <laughs> so it, under SEO her credits yeah. on a Broadway World, it would say this play, and that was enjoyable for me. <laughs> but I feel like she's been similar to Anne Hathaway, Shakespeare's wife. I feel like Anne Hathaway, the actress, has had to deal with... A pretty unfair amount of sexist projections. So there actually felt like there was this relationship between the two women to me that felt interesting. And so it was sort of similar to the Jane Anger thing where I just combined people. I guess that's what playwriting is, is everything is sort of a composite of people you know and ideas that you have.
1: And resonances. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Onion skins. Mm-hmm. This is your first time writing a comedy. And there's so many jokes in this play and 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 timing is so critical in in uh-huh. farce which is really what this is. So how did you teach yourself or how did you know how to pace and structure a comedic play and ha- and and make these decisions about jokes that really are usually made before a live audience in a, if I you're stand up, right? You hone your your set. Well, as an actor
2: I was in a few pretty traditional comedies and Michael Urie and I met in this revival of Gogol's The Government Inspector, uh, which Jeffrey Hatcher adapted, that we did in New York like, oh God, I don't know, like five or six years ago. And we did that for for almost half a year and I learned a lot in that about jokes um, and farce on stage. And so I think I had an instinct from being an actor but a lot of it, I was kind of learning on the job, obviously, as I like threw a character in there to give myself health insurance and then sort of justified it in the plot. I don't know. I definitely at some point had to go back and and go back. The first draft of the play was sort of all jokes and this, the plot structure was really poor. And then I had to go back in and really work on the structure and really draw that out. And I was really happy with our production in New York and I was really happy that it was so well received. But it was thrown up really chaotically. I had COVID um, for most of rehearsals and had to zoom in and we didn't have previews. So we didn't actually have the opportunity to do exactly what you're saying, which is like work on the play and improve it (laughs) in rehearsals while we're also in performances. So we had all this information that we were learning, as I said, about like, what jokes just were not funny with the audience or what jokes were landing so well and wanted to be
1: expanded even more. Yeah, can you give me an example of 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 some of those jokes, the jokes that evolved as you workshopped, or or ones that landed that you didn't expect?
2: Oh yeah, there was so much. There's so much that you learn with an audience, and in my experience with Jane Anger and also with the government inspector, the first week of shows is kind of horrible. Like it kind of feels like the play just is bad because you haven't found the rhythm yet, and It just doesn't make a lot of sense, and then there's like this magical one performance where something clicks, and it's really special, and it's like the whole play changes and it starts to work. But you have sort of have to sort of have this like ugly week of performances where like it's really not working to get there. Um, Some examples. Well, there there would be laughs in there would not be laughs in places that I thought were funny, and then there would be. I, I just cut something 15 minutes ago in rehearsal, uh, which is when Jane's trying to get Frankie out of the room and she says, Frankie, go thither. And he co- he he go- comes closer to her and she goes, that's hither. I said thither, um, which I thought was funny, but it just never got a big enough laugh. So I cut it. I just cut it.
1: Fresh off the it's presses. Incisive. So uh,
2: um, but then there's another, like when I came in as Anne Hathaway, Anne Hathaway has been abandoned and she's just so desperate to talk to someone and she's just talking a mile a minute and she says, I haven't been touched in seven years except for this one time when a spider bit me. And something that I didn't anticipate was that I would get a laugh in the middle of that line. Like I thought the laugh line was except this one time when a spider bit me, but I would get a laugh in the middle of the line after I haven't been touched in seven years. So I sort of had to like take a catch breath in the middle of the line for the laugh before continuing, which was just like, I wasn't, I don't know if I would have written the line that way if I'd known that the laugh was going to fall there.
1: What is funny about I haven't been touched in seven years? Well, I think she's just, she's so desperate. And at that point
2: he's set up the exposition that he's basically abandoned her just to live his bohemian artist life in the city and she comes in and she is she's sort of like this adult child doll child like she doesn't really know how to speak to people in a normal way sometimes i wonder is my husband dead and then i read a review of one of his plays and i know that he is not dead he is important <laughs> and She's just desperate for physical contact and for
1: warmth. Yeah, that's interesting that the laugh comes after she says, I haven't been touched in seven years. It must have been the way that you say that line and everything that leads up to it that that creates the laugh. And I guess that's something you can't anticipate.
2: Yeah. And then, you know, as we went on with the run, we would fool around and come up with different ways of delivering different lines. And ultimately you find the way that sort of, gets a laugh and try to go down that road a little bit further.
1: So do you have any plans to do more Shakespeare-related writing or farce?
2: No, though I do have a play that's going to be, if all goes according to plan, I have a play that's going to be in New York in March that I've written that is sort of a prequel to The Crucible, and the, the characters are just the four girls from The Crucible, and... In writing this play, I've sort of really delved into a lot of Arthur Miller, which is obviously very different from Shakespeare, but there are some similarities. So
1: four girls, you're not going to have Arthur Miller walk on and take him down. No,
2: no. Arthur Miller's not a character. John Proctor's not a character. It's just the four girls, and it, you know, the crucible starts when Paris finds the four girls doing something in the woods, mm. and the play sort of goes up to that night in the woods. Um, and it's not it's not I think it's funny, but it's not funny in the same way as Jane Inger. I, I think it's a little bit darker and weirder and, and spookier. But I'm really excited for it.
1: Well, I wish you luck. I can't wait to see it. And thank Thanks. you so much for this. So fun.
2: Oh, thank you. It's been so much fun to talk.
0: That was Talene Monahan talking with Barbara Bogave. Monahan's play, Jane Anger, runs at the Shakespeare Theatre Company in Washington, D.C. through January 8th. You can find tickets and more information at shakespeareDC.org. This episode was produced by Matt Frassica. Garland Scott is associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer with help from Leonor Fernandez. We had technical help from Andrew Logan in Washington and Jenna McClellan at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California. Final mixing services provided by Clean Cuts at Three Cs Inc. If you're a fan of Shakespeare Unlimited, do not forget to subscribe on your podcast platform of choice so that you never miss an episode. And please leave a review so that you can help others find this show. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger director, Michael Whitmore.